I want to talk to you today about the individual nature of risk-taking. Sometimes in teaching, we don't come to conclusions of what others should do or should not do. Teaching isn't always that. It's not always coming to a conclusion. Sometimes in teaching, we simply grapple with the issues and anticipate that you will be a Berean. The Bereans were the people that heard the teaching and then went home and compared it to the Word. That you will do that. That you will hear the grappling with the issues and then ask the Spirit to lead you individually to the truth in which He is sparking in your heart for you to walk in. This is kind of one of those kinds of lessons today about individual risk. It came about really as a result of a conversation that I had with a, a, a friend that I've known many years as a, as a small business. And uh, this past week, he and I were just chatting for a moment. He's not part of this church. Um, he's a solid Christian. He's probably in his mid-50s. He has some physical challenges in his life. But he's very strong in the Word, very strong follower of Jesus. And he was telling me that at the beginning of the, of the COVID outbreak, that he really tried to uh, do the things that others anticipated that he should do. He, he, he said, I was really trying to be just very considerate and just easygoing with, with everybody else. Um, so he said, I would, I would go through my days, because he deals with people a lot, and he said, I would go through my days trying to sense what that other person felt about risk of contact with me and whether or not they were okay in getting within six feet of me. And uh, if I sensed any hesitation in them, I was asking, and he said it was okay. He said I was okay with that. It was a little bit of a bother, but he felt that the consideration of others was worth it. it it's, it's worth it. But this is what he said. He said, Somewhere along the way, it seems to me, now this is, this is subjective, it seems to me that the atmosphere changed. Attitudes changed. Kind of, there was kind of a social shift that took place. And he said, I began to feel judged by others when I didn't mask up um, for just like casual meetings. He said, I began to feel that in, in things that some were saying. And he said, it began to feel like I was honoring them, but they weren't honoring me. That's what he said. Now, I think that can be felt on both sides of, of the equation. I, I do. I think that can be felt on both sides. So after that conversation, the next day, I believe it was, Judy and I were having a, a devotional time, and I shared with her the conversation. We were reflecting on it. And one of the things that we kind of came down to is that risk-taking is a very individual thing. We all try to frame our risk-taking in terms that to us seem biblical or at least practical. But at some level, 
all of us has a, a, a scales within us, a, a scale, a, a measuring scale within us. And, and that measuring scale within us is about how far we will go in taking this particular risk. And it's a very individual thing. Uh, Judy and I are going through um, many of the very ordinary, I would call them bumps, uh, with newly married people. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we've just been married for mm, three and a half weeks, four weeks, something like that, I don't know. Not very long. And so um, one of the bumps that we are, we are bumping on is this little line on food products that says, best if used by, and then there's a date there. Okay. Now, you can't even find it on something. I mean, you almost have to have a magnifying glass, but she sees that thing like, like a hawk, you know? Now, she sees that. She's not in here to defend herself right now, so it's a shame. I, I don't, I'm doing this, but I'm really walking on the water here. She sees that as an expiration date. So I go to the fridge and I say, where's the whatever, fill in the blank. She says, it passed the date. It's in the garbage. And I say, that was still good. <laughs> see, I see it as a suggestion. <laughs> and it is subject to my very personal approval. Okay? That's how I look at it. Her, her view is, her view is, do you want it on the worst date? <laughs> it says best if used by this. You want it on the worst date. <laughs> now I'm being more dramatic than she is. She's very quiet and peaceful about it. Uh, my risk with food is kind of a, a sniff and taste uh, test. You know, I sniff it. And listen, if in doubt on the sniff, it, it goes. Yeah, it's out of there. I mean, there, there's, no more, there's no more appeal. It, it's just gone. <laughs> but if, if, if it smells okay, then I tend to take a little bite of it, a little nibble of it. Now, I'm not talking about eating a gallon or something. I'm talking about just kind of trying it to make sure it tastes all right. Tom, you got something to say. <laughs> So if it passes those tests, then I say, it's good. And she thinks I am far too risky in that. She feels like I'm really over the top too risky in that. I'm talking about you, Judy, right now. Are you, oh, one of her grandchildren came walking in. But I have lived a life, I'm sharing this with someone this week. I don't know, it may have been, Tim, it may have been in our conversation. I have lived a life that has been riskier than most people's lives. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. Um, I mean, I'm 73 years old, and this is what I like to do. That's what I like to do. I noodle that fish out of the Arkansas River up in Oklahoma. Now, here's the one I'm really after. Just got this yesterday from my sister in Oklahoma. That's the one I'm really after. <laughs> now, I, don't, I, I looked at that photo and I thought, am I really after him? I mean, I keep... The biggest fish I have ever noodled was 58 pounds. And I'm thinking, 
I don't know that I want to get a hold of that one or him get hold of me. <laughs> well, so anyway, I just thought it was a great photo. I, I don't know. Somebody said, has it been touched up or whatever? I don't know, but it's a great photo anyway. Well, it's Chickasaw Lake, and uh, Chickasaw Lake is a good noodling place, so I don't know. What was that? <laughs> oh, do people understand how you catch them? You catch them with your hand. You reach into the holes under rocks and in logs, and you see if there's a fish there. And if, you, if it is, you go for him. <laughs> Basically, you just go for him. And if you don't do it that way, if you use hooks and things, it's illegal. If a, a game warden ever catches you sticking a hook in there or something like that, mm -mm, you can get in some big trouble. Yeah. Oh, most of the time you're underwater when you're doing that. No, no, no. You're, you're diving under the water. Now, it's not deep water. Usually it's like water here to here, you know, somewhere in that range. So, but you are underwater because you're feeling under a rock. And so, uh, so, I mean, I grew up with risk. I, I, I honestly remember this, and I, I had to verify it with one of my cousins who was there. I thought, I can't really believe my dad would have done this, but I remember them under a big rock and this is where that 58 pounder was under a big rock in Bear Creek you, I'm sure you want to hear this story <laughs> um, and uh, uh, the hole under the rock wasn't big enough for any of these big old farm boys to get under there my dad my uncle and you know these guys they, they couldn't get under there and it was a big enough rock that the fish just kept staying in the middle had a big carved out place underneath there and he just stayed in the middle and so they would try to reach in and but I was the littlest guy there and I was probably 11 or 12 years old and my dad said I think you'll fit in this hole <laughs> uh, this is a true story he said I think you'll fit in here so I came over there like any kid in the country would do and I said well I think so too so he shoved me in the hole <laughs> <laughs> So I still have memories. I don't dream about it. I don't have nightmares about it. But I still have memories of being under that rock and that fish just beating me to death under that rock and trying to hold on to it. You know, I was just holding on to this 58-pound flathead. I think, what can I do now? You know, I was just struggling to figure it out. And so finally, we kind of wallered our way over to where the hole was. And my dad reached in, got a hold of something on me and the fish, and he pulled out both the fish and me out of the hole. And we caught that rascal. But he about beat me to death before we caught him. <laughs> See, I've, I've had a life of risk. All my life has been like that. My wife and I, Jean and I, moved 33 times. Lived in three foreign countries. We took incredible risks. Even in my, even in my childhood, I, like, you, like I said, it was... I remember when my dad was selling an old farm truck. I was probably, I don't know, nine years old at the time, something like that. He was selling an old farm truck, dirty old truck. And so he's kind of getting stuff out of it, you know, like you do when you're going to sell something. And he finds a little can of K-rations in that, in that truck back behind the seat. K-rations were what the men lived on in World War II, soldiers. They'd take K-rations along with them, and it was their... That was what they could eat while they were in the foxhole or wherever they were. And um, so he found this little can of K-rations from World War II. 
Now, that was probably eight years since, more than that, more like 10 years since he came home from the war. So he says, look at this. He, he kind of took them on his overalls like that and dusted them off. And he said, look at that, that's, that's K-rations. And I said, really? That's what you guys ate? And he said, yeah. He took his pocket knife and just opened up the can. And he smelled it and he said, you know what? That smells just good as ever. I said, really? He said, yeah. So he takes his knife and he, he takes some of it. And he said, yep, tastes, tastes just like it ever did. I said, let me have some of that. So, so I took his knife. And we both shared this can of K-rations there. That was, yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> my, my point is, risk is not a one-size-fits-all thing. I have a higher tolerance for risk than um, most people do, I think. Um, many of you know that several years ago, I, I fell out of a pretty high point in the tree cutting off some limbs. My pastor friends on Wednesday morning, they bug me about this all the time. You're not still climbing them trees, are you? And I always tell them, when I got healed up, the first thing I wanted to do was get up there and work my chainsaw again because I wanted to get right back on that horse again and get back to the thing that I love to do, which is work with trees and, and do that kind of work. I love it. And so for me, that's, that's just my life. Now, would I say that's right for everybody? No, not at all. If somebody else said, man, I fell out of a tree, I'm not getting up there anymore. I'm going to pay somebody to do it. I understand that, absolutely understand it, and I would be the first one to try to find somebody to help you. But if you wanted to get up there, if I felt like you were healthy enough, and I'm healthy enough, you could do it. You could do it. Judy and I have been reading through uh, the book of Joshua recently. In our devotional time, God said to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. He said that like three times in chapter one of the book of Joshua. Be strong and of good courage. Now, Joshua was a military guy. And to him, what that meant was, God was saying, when I say move, move. Be strong and of good courage. When I say move, move. So he did. But he also was a risk taker. And the scripture doesn't say that God told him everything to do. It doesn't say that. God told him how to take Jericho, exactly. But then there was a series of, if you read it in there, in the first part of Joshua, there was a, and, and we're going to study this. This is, what, this is why the in-home Bible studies on the subject of prepare for battle came about, was reading in the book, first part of the book of Joshua. And I wanted us to study this together. Because there was a series of leadership decisions that Joshua made, and it just says this. You can read it for yourself. It just says, Joshua said to the people. It doesn't say God said and Joshua said. It just says Joshua said to the people. Or Joshua said to the priests, do such and so. Now what's going on there? Joshua got the big picture. Be strong and of good courage. So he's moving in it. Now you could say, wait a minute here. If God doesn't tell you, you better not do it. Mm, I understand that. Did God tell you what shirt to wear today? You know, I remember in California one time, I came outside of a church. It was one of those real super spiritual churches, you know, where everything's, you know, they're real spooky about it. And um, here was a group of about 
five young people holding hands out on the steps. I'm not kidding, Charlie. This is, this is what I really saw. And they're praying, Lord, what restaurant should we go to tonight? Lord, just tell us what restaurant to go to. Should we go to, I can't remember the two or three that they named. And then the leader says, I believe we're supposed to go to such and so. Listen, don't get weird about what restaurant to go to. I mean, if God wants to check you on going somewhere because the food's poison, don't go there. But you don't have to pray every time you go into a restaurant to figure out if it's right or not. Make a choice. Take a risk. Wow, what a thought. You know? But then, so, so Joshua's making decisions, and he's taking risks, and God's honoring him. I mean, just case after case, God's honoring him. But then he went too far. Then he went too far, and he took a risk that they could easily take the city of Ai. Remember that story? Well, it didn't work because sin had gotten into the camp at Jericho. So the circumstances had changed. But Joshua was still acting on an old word. You with me? He had an old word that he's still acting on, but the circumstances had changed. That's where we risk takers can get into trouble is we will take an old word or an old thought or an old idea and just cling to it and keep on saying, but God said this, but God said this, but God said, well, what's he, you know, does God ever change what he says to us? Oh, yeah. It happened all through the scripture. See, risk is, risk is fine to a certain extent. But when risk becomes presumption, we miss God, and we have trouble, and people can even die. What is, okay, what's presumption? Let me just give you my version. It's pretty close, but just, just quick and dirty. Presumption is when I give myself more credit than I should in what God is doing. And presumption is... I think I'm right far too often. Paul said, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to in Romans 12. But God's people took incredible risks sometimes. Think about David. David facing Goliath. You know, I read through all of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Because... I wasn't sure where the Lord spoke to David in all of that. I found that his father, Jesse, asked him to take some food to his brothers. That was a practical, very practical decision. Everything after that, his words and his actions seemed to have come from the heart of this young man based on his past experience. Everything. And God honored all those risks that he took. It just says, and David said, and David said, and then David asked this. And it, it never says God spoke to him and said, do this, do that, ask this question or whatever. He's out there walking on the water. He's taking risks with this thing, this, this giant. He says, is there not a cause? He doesn't say God spoke to me. And when he became king, God gave him tremendous victory after victory because he had a submitted heart. And he also, like Joshua, was, a, was a, a warring man. 
But when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, he went over the line. He went over the line. Brought it from the house of Abinadab, I think was the guy's name, to Zion in Jerusalem. And he went from righteous risk to presumption in one move there. In effect, David was saying, I got this, God. I know what I'm doing here. This is the David way to do things. Mm. This is the David way to do things. I got this. And a fine young man, Yusa, was killed. Lost his life. Because of a risky man that went too far and got into presumption. So... There's a conclusion in that, and it is that risk and faith are not the same. And I think that gets confused with many people. I think, I think many people think that risk and faith, they almost put them as co-equal, and, and they are not. Now, often there is a risk involved in faith, just like David took risks and Joshua took risks, and I take risks. So risk is often involved. But in a pandemic world, how do we stay balanced to take proper risks of faith and we don't make presumptuous or cavalier or flippant decisions which might harm other people? I think that's an important area of question. And that's what Judy and I came up with in our devotional time. I'm going to give you my attempt at three guidelines that I think can help us in that. And this is just from my heart to your ears. Be a Berean. Take it. See what you think. The first one is, understand that God leads different people in different ways. There are, um, there are two Greek words for the word word in your New Testament Bible. Uh, one is logos. And um, a good definition of that is the said word of God. I think that's up there. Yeah, the said word of God. The word that he has said that has been recorded. Now, when you... A, a lot of people try to prove their view by proof texting, what, what we call proof texting. It is, I've got this verse here and I've got this verse here. And so they've got the five verses in the Bible underlined that they really like. They're ignoring the rest of the Bible. but So they don't have a balanced view of God's heart. They just have favorite verses and they can proof text what they believe. It's a very flimsy way to go through your life. It's a very flimsy way to defend your decisions is to proof text because you can find a proof text for almost anything. A lot of people made big mistakes doing that. But it is the said word of God. Every word of this Bible is a logos word. It is the said word of God. Rama is, it's been called the speaking word of God. It will never be in conflict with Logos, but it seems to be, as best we can tell, uh, let me give you just one example from the New Testament. The, the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, is the, it says the Word of God, but it's not Logos, it's Rhema. It's the Rhema of God. It's that Word that you've got right there that you can take in your hand and you can use it. You can use it right then. It's a sword. That's yours to use. That's Rhema. 
So God, it seems like what, what, what ram, the rhema word is, is when God takes a, a portion of his logos word and he amplifies it to your heart so that it becomes very personal. And so you'll hear people say, saying, uh, that's a life verse for me. I have some, probably most of you do have verses that have become a life verse to you. I've got, well, I'm thinking, a couple of them, I think, on the walls at home. Um, I, I, you know, uh, so those things become rhema to you, and you go back to them again and again. Um, Dr. Uh, Paul Yonggi Cho, I think he changed his name to David somewhere along, David Yonggi Cho, but in, when he wrote The Fourth Dimension, it was Paul Yonggi Cho. Um, he wrote this about that. Rhema is produced out of logos. Logos is like the pool of Bethesda. You may listen to the Word of God and you may study the Bible, but only when the Holy Spirit comes and quickens a scripture or scriptures to your heart, burning them in your soul and letting you know that they apply directly to your specific situation, does Logos become Rhema. He goes on on the next page. People must come to the main sanctuary listen attentively to the preacher, and then wait upon the Lord. But they do not come and listen prayerfully to the preacher, waiting upon the Lord to receive rhema. Therefore, they cannot receive the faith they need for the solutions of their problems. He's saying, if we don't come and listen faithfully and then prayerfully take that to the Lord... Rhema doesn't happen in our soul because we just grab logos and go with it. So he says their knowledge of the Bible increases as their problems increase. And though they come to church, nothing happens. So they begin to fall away and lose faith. Hmm. That's uh, Dr. Yonggi Cho, uh, South Korean pastor. So what, is, um, so what is rhema to one, to you or me, may be accepted and valued by another person. You quote that same verse to them and they value it and they appreciate it. But it may not be rhema to them. I, I'm sure we've all experienced this. You've got a verse that just burns within you and you're, you're, you just think this is the word of God. And, and you give it to someone and they go, oh, oh thanks, I appreciate that. And it's like, it wasn't significant to them like it was to me. It didn't happen in them. It didn't light the same fire in them that it did in me. Likewise, the risk of faith on the part of one could be presumption on the part of another. In other words, one person takes the risk of faith, as I'm talking about it. Another person tries to do the same thing, and they're just moving in presumption. God said to Moses, he said, lead the people across the Red Sea. Parted the waters. People went across. Pharaoh and his troops says, what are we, chopped liver? They can do it, we can do it. They went into the same path as God's people did and were absolutely destroyed in the waters. So just because somebody else does it doesn't mean you can do it. Just because somebody else has a word doesn't mean you can grab that same word.
Have you ever watched a, a teacher or a minister or just maybe even someone that's just good at what they do? Might not even be in the ministry. And then you tried to do what he or she did and it didn't work and it fell flat. Have we ever, anybody besides me tried to do that? I've, I've done that. It's because it was a raiment to them, but it wasn't to you. Now, here's what could happen, though. You could see someone else and get a vision of what God has called you to be and do. And it would, be a, and it would become a raiment to you. That can happen. Um, an example of that is when my uncle, T.L. Osborne, he and Daisy in their early days had come home from India in great devastation because they'd been total failures over there. Just nothing had happened. And um, uh, he used to laugh about what he said to her when they came underneath. They came back home by ship. And he said, when we came under the Golden Gate Bridge, he said, he said sweetheart, I will never take you away from these shores again. <laughs> and all they did all their life was travel all around the world. Um, but... Um, they went to India and were total failures and just couldn't wait to get back to the States because things were so horrible there. And uh, they were pastoring a church up in Oregon. And Daisy had heard about uh, William Branham being there in one of his meetings. So she went and then she encouraged T.L. to go. And so he went and as he told it to me several times, um, there was a lady that came up with a seeing eye dog and he put his hands on her and she immediately saw and she started just, just exploding with joy and delight and the dog got so excited it started barking and it was a big uproar on the stage because this dog didn't know what was going on with this woman, didn't know somebody attacking or whatever, she was just making all kinds of noise. She was just happy because she could see. So T.L. watches this, and on the way home, he's thinking about it, and he's driving. And he said, I distinctly felt the Holy Spirit saying these words to me. You can do that. You can do that. You can do that. Now, so a rhema word to William Branham became a rhema word to T.L. Osborne. Now, it was retranslated as far as style was concerned. He and William Branham became friends, and they remained friends. Even when William Branham's doctrine got off, they remained friends and would visit one another. Um, so it wasn't the duplication, but it was that arama word that was in some became a arama word. Uh, that's a lot of leadership, really. See, when you go with Ron down to DISC, the Dallas International Street Church, on first Fridays, he's, yeah, next week, yeah, he's, he says, ah, it's coming. Uh, you know, he's operating in a word that God's given him. Now, it's your part to do this. You don't have to have the same rain word. You don't have to feel the same. I've done a lot of things. I don't think I'm called to yard sales, all right? I mean, I just don't think that's going to be a 100% calling of my life to do yard sales. In fact, Judah, I kind of pray that it's not. You know, it's like, Lord, is there another way? <laughs> um. So anyway, but sometimes you can get a rhema for yourself from someone that has that special calling and that special anointing from the Lord. But you can't expect everyone to agree with your expression of faith. 
because they may have a rhema in an area that you don't have. So number one is understand that God leads different people in different ways. The second guideline would be this that I'd like to submit to you. And this is my language. Not every hill is worth dying on. Not every hill is worth dying on. Don't make a, don't, don't make a personal crusade out of everything that you think or feel or believe. Don't, don't, don't make a crusade out of it. Just, just do it. Just walk in it and just do it. Um, you know, the mercy of God, the mercy of God is an amazing thing. The mercy of God is God's flexibility in action. You ever think about that? The mercy of God. God said to Moses, um, I think it's in Exodus chapter 30, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So it's one of those sovereign things. It's, it's like a, one writer called it the dancing hand of God. It's, it's that when he just chooses to have mercy. God's had mercy on some that you and I would never have mercy on. And then sometimes there's this dear person that's dying of cancer, and every one of us would have mercy on that person. And they don't get healed. Mercy of the Lord is very unpredictable. But it is God's flexibility to those who are wrong or off or doing their best sometimes. And we should all be thankful for that. You know why? Because we've all made our share of mistakes. We've all missed it. We've all got humanity rattling around in our body. And there's fallibility in that. If you're human, you're going to make mistakes. So the mercy of God is that flexibility toward people that might be off. And yet, He continues to have mercy upon them. Now, anyone can have mercy toward people who are good or loved or kind to us. But listen to chapter, this, uh, chapter 6 in Luke. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Uh, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to the sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Now, this last part is the clincher. Say it out loud with me, the last part. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Wow. That's pretty hard for us to deal with sometimes. We live in a very litigious world, don't we? I mean, we really do. We, we live in a world where people are always thinking in terms of their rights. Well, it's my right to do this. I can stand out here if I want to. I can shout this if I want to. And I can, I can say whatever I want to. I can pull down a statue if I want to. And I can do this and do that if I want to because I'm, I'm in America and I can, I can do it. And we're very litigious about that. As a Christian, though... We've got to get to a place where we're willing to, are you ready for this? This is tough medicine. Lay down our rights. Not so easy, huh? 
we've got to get to the place where we're a submitted people. Now, that doesn't mean that, we're, that we don't stand up to the bullies of the world and of life, you know? I'm just saying, see, see, when Jesus said, he said, look, if somebody wants you to walk with them for a ways, walk with them further. If somebody slaps you on one side, go ahead and let them slap you on the other side. Somebody wants your coat, give them that. Give them something else also. What's he talking about? He's talking about little offenses there, small things. Don't get all, don't get yourself all, <laughs> start to use the word there. Don't get yourself all in a wad. Some of you know what I was thinking. Um, over little things. You know, if somebody doesn't get your hamburger right, don't get scoldy with them. Anybody can make your hamburger wrong. Or in some way you didn't order it. You know, relax a little bit. Don't get so uptight about it the way you've got to have it. I've got my rights. That's the way I ordered it. That's what I said to you. Man, I look at Christians sometimes in restaurants and I think, I'm, an, I'm, I'm embarrassed about that. I've seen Christians in restaurants, people I knew, who don't even make eye contact with the waiter or waitress. They just sit there looking at the menu, muttering, I want that, I want that, give me some of that. Not a please in there, there's not a thank you in there. And I look at those waitresses and I think, oh, they get that all day long. All day long. I want some of that. Give me some of that. And if it's wrong, this, this is wrong. I didn't ask for pickles. On my, why don't you take the pickles off? You know, just take the stupid pickles out of there. God has mercy on people that are not right or better or first. And we need to have mercy on people when they are not right or better or first. We're called to that. Let me give you a biblical example. Very interesting. Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, it was a tough time in Jerusalem. I mean, it was a really tough time, a famine time. And the, the new disciples, the new followers of Jesus, were, were helping by trying to provide food for the people. Well, the Greek-speaking people that were coming and getting the food, they accused the disciples of favoring uh, the Hebrews' people, the, the Hebrew people, with more and better food than they did with their Greek ancestry. Now, that was the perception. That was the accusation. But the disciples, listen to what they did not do. They did not do a food study. They didn't. They didn't call in the experts and say, okay, we want you guys to come in and make a decision here and find out that anything like this is going on. They didn't call their lawyers in to figure things out. They didn't start counting meals or weighing food to see if this person was getting more than this person. It was an accusation. It was a perception. Perception. Read the account. There's nothing in it that suggests it was true. They just they felt that way. You can feel things a lot of times that are not true. They felt that way. So, but the disciples, this was their response. They said, you know, we're probably not very good at this anyway. I mean, I don't think we're very good at it. We need to just stick with the gospel. Let's choose seven Greeks to distribute the food because their names suggest they were Greeks. Let's just get seven Greeks to distribute the food, and that'll, 
And you know what? It solved the problem. It took care of the perception. It leveled the playing field. And it never says that what they were saying was true. They may have been feeding the Greeks just as much as the Hebrews. But it was a felt thing. It was a perception. So there's a lot of perception going on today. There's a lot of perception from every angle and a lot of legalism coming from different angles. In a given week, I will get emails from those that are giving me evidence that we, we all are not required to wear masks or that some doctor said it's actually harmful to us to wear masks, etc., and some of you know what I'm talking about. See, people say, well, the experts say this. Well, it depends on which expert you're listening to. There's all kinds of experts, you know? You know what an expert is, don't you? A used-to-be drip. Um, it's just... It's somebody giving an opinion. But I get... And, and then I'll get something on the other side every week, and it, it'll be back and forth. I think we've all experienced that. I don't, I, I'm not offended in it, by the way. So if you were thinking about sending me something, go ahead. I got big shoulders. My computer can take some more emails. And uh, I, I really do read them. But there's a lot of legalism com coming down the pike today. When do we lay down our rights and choose mercy instead of being legalistic? When do we do that? The flexibility of the Father's heart is one that is kind to the unthankful and the evil even. So that was number two. The third one is simply this. Let's stop judging the faith of other people. Paul said, let every man believe according to his own conscience. He said, he said follow your conscience. He said, if it offends my brother to eat meat, huh, and I won't eat meat. That's one of those small things. Now, I didn't get to this earlier. Those scriptures about the small things need to be weighed against Paul when he said, I appeal to Caesar. That was the equivalent of, I'm appealing to the Supreme Court. That was the equivalent. He said, you're mistreating me, and it's not fair what you're doing. I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to the Supreme Court level with this thing. So, there's a time when godly people, Chick-fil-A, I'm thinking of, go all the way. They go all the way because it's right and God's in it and they have a word from the Lord that we need to do this. Go for it. But Paul said when it comes to eating meat, I can eat soy burgers or whatever. I haven't tried those from Walmart yet, but uh, Walmart, I mean from uh, McDonald's. He said, I, I just won't do it. I can adapt. I don't have to bring him, I don't have to bring a person before the church tribunal just because they're eating a certain kind of meat that I don't agree with. Now, let me balance that with this. Of course, if a leader or an influential person is clearly unbiblical, clearly heretical, they're, they're off, the, the wheels are off. Then there's a time for righteous judgment, and, and that's when Paul says whose mouths must be stopped. That's the time when you do take action. I don't believe we should just be pushed around by bullies. But I think we need to be careful that we're not the bully too. 
Bullying can come in sweet little packages. That seems real logical and sweet, but really it's real pushy. Listen to Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know what? I, I often say to people, I've got enough on my plate just to take care of Gary. I, don't, I can't take care of you. I've got enough on my plate right here just taking care of myself. I've heard from some who believe that wearing masks and even gloves is an expression of their faith because faith, Galatians says, faith works by love, doesn't it? Faith works by love. And so they wear the protection for the benefit of others, not for themselves. I would never argue with that view. I would never argue with that view. I think you could have that view and be very right on and comfortable with yourself. However, there's another view that I would ask that that person would take into consideration also. And it's a view that feels that acting on your faith means taking the risk of encountering others. In other words, it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, you may not feel that or agree with that, but that person may feel that in their heart. As one person said to me this last week, I'm wearing a mask. It's called Psalm 91. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, I get that. My late wife, Jean, wrote a letter to the church. Just a couple of days before she died. This was on my desk when I came home from West, from West Texas, from camp, in the wee hours of the morning. I'm going to read just an excerpt from the letter. I read it at her memorial service, and this is the first time I've referenced it since then. My dear precious friends, I've received news no one wants to hear. The fight is on for my life. In nine days, this has all been manifested from the enemy. You may not approve of my faith or my method, but this is my body and my choice. I've always trusted God's word and his promises to heal. I've looked for his miracles and the outpouring of his spirit my entire walk with him, even many years before I accepted him. Let's not criticize how others live out their faith. Others have their own hearts to deal with. Please show compassion and love. I remembered that, and I took it out of my desk drawer, and uh, I read that, and I thought, that's right on. That's right on. In our risk-taking, let's not forget to be compassionate people kind to others, considerate of others, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. He is a humble king, and he's called us to be a humble and compassionate people. 